Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, it'll be the second in my series of episodes purely dedicated to decades of film and cinema history. Now, obviously, I can't go through the entire back history catalogue of every single decade, so... As I've said on the previous episode, I will only be looking at my personal picks for the top five films of each decade, and today's episode I should be focusing my attentions on the 1930s. Uh, So 1930s is not a year that I'm very familiar with, I am and, and I'm not at the same time, so I know of lots of films from the 1930s, but personally I've watched more from different eras that will be later on in this series of episodes. I do have quite a few that I do like and that I've cherry-picked from my own personal experiences and ones that I like, so obviously this series is a very subjective series, as is any of my episodes on the podcast, but there you have it. So, to start off with, so I'm going to be, like I did last time, running in reverse order, so from number 5 all the way up to number 1. Now, I will say now, numbers 2 and 1, my top 2 picks, I would probably say are really neck and neck for me because I love both of them they are really my top favorite films of the 1930s but we shall get on to this in just a moment and just to say as a reminder what I do with these episodes is that I will be listing my top five I'll be going through my favorite moments from them telling you a little bit about them as well so there'll be a few spoilers ahead telling you a few bits about the plot and such and also I'll be giving you my favorite moment from each film but here we go number five on my list so and when I say this, this isn't by any means any like how good or bad the film is. It's just because of the way it is. So the first pick of mine, number five, is from 1937 from Walt Disney Studios. This is the humble beginnings of Walt Disney. And that is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the first ever animated feature film. Uh, it clocks in at around just about uh, just under an hour and a half. And it basically plays up on what Disney really enjoyed in the early days so disney explored a lot of their they did a lot of shorts and a lot of short mini films and they didn't really capitalize into feature films until this very moment so this is snow white and the seven dwarfs from 1937 and whilst they do use some gags as they called them humor throughout the film it's a very emotional film one of the first forays into emotion and also using animation hand-drawn 2D animation to resonate with a larger family audience and capitalizing into this idea of adult fantasy. And adult fantasy, I'll cu- I'll touch on that a little bit later, but this film, let's just say, inspires one of my other picks to be made. But Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Walt Disney Pictures presented that film in 1937. It was very big, very groundbreaking. Some of, you know, there was gags like you got from the short films, but also you had the raw emotion of the romance from Snow White and our happy, charming prince that uh, just happens to be passing by. He's only ever in it twice, and obviously Snow White wishes and dreams of her prince charming, as it were even though I don't think he's referred to as Prince Charming in this. I think Prince Charming is more of a construct from Cinderella, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that this sort of really solidified the model of Disney Princess, 
Uh, and obviously, like anything, it's based off of some sort of source material. So Snow White is obviously based off of an original fairy tale. There is, there's so many variations of the Snow White tale now. Obviously, you've got, there's the Brothers Grimm, which is arguably the original one there. Uh, all these different fairy tales, and there's other depictions which have come to life now. Different books, different films, but this is kind of the benchmark for all of the Disney princesses then, before Cinderella, before Sleeping Beauty, before Rapunzel Entangled, uh, before any in of the other princesses that we know today, Frozen, none of those would be possible in the Disney light of things without Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And it was groundbreaking for the time, as I said, because it was just a very simple narrative, romance, pathos, comedy, but a lot of the comedy, I would say, comes from the Seven Dwarfs part of the film. Uh, so if you don't know the story, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is essentially about a character, princess called Snow White, uh, who is driven away from her home, from her castle, because of her wicked stepmother, because there's always a stepmother, uh, the Queen, uh, who has a mirror that she talks to, and she goes, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And obviously the mirror's answer will always be Snow White and the Queen's very jealous and essentially goes out on a rampage to try and kill Snow White so that she can be declared fairest of the land. Uh, so she sends uh, Huntsman out to kill her. The Huntsman can't do it and the Huntsman tells Snow White to run away into the forest to which she makes a load of friends with some animal creatures that uh, look very much... I suppose if anyone's seen Bambi, you can see where they got the early concept designs for the characters, the animals in Bambi, because they're pretty much the same thing. But they send... So she meets these animals, she makes friends with them, and she comes across this quaint little cottage. It's got a little bit of the whole um, Goldilocks and the Free Bears kind of thing because of the fact that she stumbles across this house. It's not hers, but she stays there anyway, and she decides to sleep in it. It's very much like that, but obviously a slightly different tale, and there's no giant bears. But there are seven dwarves and of course when she finds her way into this house she sees all these beds with all the names of the dwarves on them which she initially thinks are children and then eventually the dwarves and Snow White do meet and they kind of get along apart from possibly Grumpy because Grumpy has a bit of a negative disposition against her from the start but does kind of learn to love her by the end of the film but essentially that's all it really is is she runs away from her stepmother because she's ha tried to have her killed because she wants to be the fairest in the land and yeah and then there's a prince in the middle of it who just he wanders by, scares Snow White because she's a bit like, I don't know, worried about him, a bit retiring and shy with, within herself then. Uh, so she runs away from him at the beginning. He's never to be seen again until the end of the film where he just happens to turn up and give her a kiss and then it cures everything and makes everything happy ever after, which, you know, I suppose for a simple narrative back in the day, it's fine. But with, you know, more complex narratives in place and obviously with a slightly older mind and point of view, I and probably most of you guys, unless you've got kids or you know relatives that are kids that love that sort of really easy to follow narrative, then you're going to sort of be like, mm, well, toss up between the two of do I want something simple and sweet or do I want something that's a little bit more that I can get my teeth into then? But the, yeah, so Snow White, it's a very simple story and the key moment for me uh, so obviously we've got all the seven dwarves and I can name all of them off the top of my head. So there's Dopey, Sneezy, Grumpy, Happy, Doc, Bashful and Sleepy. I would say my top moment from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, even though it's a simple film, even though it's really, it's not like Inception or anything groundbreaking like we're used to today in terms of cinema that's aimed at adults, because this is adult fantasy, but it mainly is a family film. It's a film that's aimed to be for kids but the adults can watch and I, I think the moment for me it's got to be the apple scene so for those of you who haven't seen the film obviously spoilers ahead but the eating of the apple so the moment 
uh, the evil queen turns herself into this old crotchety woman who tries to obviously as a disguise she makes this big potion to disguise herself as this old woman who doesn't look anything like her stepmother so she doesn't arise suspicion she finds snow white and she entices her with an apple a shiny red apple and it's it's the moment in the film that everybody remembers other than obviously the kiss between the prince and snow white when she's like oh i'm alive now um and happy ever after uh, <laughs> but i would say yeah the moment for me in snow white and the seven dwarves is most definitely the eating of the apple because it's iconic it's there it's something that stands out to you as the moment the pivotal moment in the film before all hell breaks loose between the dwarves versus the evil queen even though they don't know she's the evil queen she kind of dies a little bit unexpectedly i'd say because it all happens so fast she kills in inverted quotes snow white and then she dies herself and nothing's ever really heard from her again it's just kind of a bit it's a bit strange if you ask me but it's a simple disney narrative we won't work too much into it but it's very enjoyable if you want to watch it with like your younger siblings or kids just young people in general it's a good family film to watch and it's not as controversial as some of the depictions in later disney films are uh, like in the 50s so for instance peter pan and any other depictions of certain racial or cultural stereotypes you know, Snow White's a very good one in the sense that although arguably it's such a simple basic narrative of, oh, the kiss is the answer to everything, I, I do think that it's very much a case of, yeah, enjoy enjoy the film because it, you watch it, it's easy to put on, it's very simple, and you've got to appreciate the artistry of the 2D anima- hand-drawn animation, which, you know, if we didn't have that, we'd never make it to Pixar and we'd never make it to the proper 3D animation uh, that we're used to from Disney these days, but I still have a soft spot for the old 2D hand-drawn animation as I grew up with those films, so... Uh, but yeah, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is my pick number five. My next pick is the... 1936 George Stevens film Swing Time. It's a brilliant film in the sense that it's one of those many, many films to star Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire as the classic dancing duo that they are. Uh, They were in several films together to such acclaim. Fred Astaire himself, just alone, is a star. So, for instance, it's not on this list, but in terms of one of my sort of favourite Fred Astaire moments is the song Top Hat from the film top hat which in spot which was obviously there's a musical of it as well uh, but that's not on this list because uh, i personally love swing time uh, 1936 film uh, so ginger rogers portrays penny carroll who's a dance instructor uh, in new york city and fred astaire is cast as john lucky garnet who is a gambler they are very much the pinnacle of polar opposites she's into dance he wants to gamble his fortunes and you know make real money i if i remember rightly because i've watched this recently but not too recently he's on the run from a marriage that he was meant to be getting into and he's just he's denying all responsibility and he's just running for it and then obviously he gets close with penny uh so penny carroll and they learn to dance together and eventually i mean i arguably i'd say swing time is probably a precursor to what singing in the rain was there's a little bit of a story there there's a love story there's a romance to it and there's a bit of an overarching narrative overall but really this is probably even simpler than singing in the rain because there's a lot of musical set pieces so the relationship between ginger rogers and fred astaire they've done so many films together the chemistry on screen is just amazing and you know so many of the actual dance like the titles aren't so swing time the actual suite that they do for that is brilliant other so but particularly for me i'd say one highlight a song highlight then i would say is the way you look tonight 
Uh, it's a beautiful song. Uh, and it's worth noting, actually, that this film, majority of the songs are written by the written and composed by the brilliant uh, musical sensations of the time that were Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. And this is, so the way you look tonight, there's a, the dance that accompanies this is a foxtrot. It's beautifully danced. It's, you know, you look at the costuming for Swing Time, it's very much like Top Hat the actual musical sequence for Top Hat, where Fred Astaire wears his top hat and tails. Uh, I would say that the ball gowns and such that worn by Ginger Rogers and the suits worn by Fred Astaire in this, the pairing of them together, it's just a gorgeous, sumptuous piece of uh, cinematic beauty and photograph beauty. It's just amazing. Uh, they are the classic dynamic dancing duo, as I would call them, uh, and this film really does see them at the... It's noted as, and I think as well, the pinnacle of their art and the pinnacle of their career as a Hollywood dance duo. I would say there's too many moments for me to mention. Obviously there's the song Swing Time itself, there's The Way You Look Tonight, so many. I think The Way You Look Tonight is probably my, I will say that's my favourite moment as well because of the fact that it's so romantic, it's so luscious. I love the foxtrot essence of it. I'm no dance expert, I just want to point that out here, but in terms of like, I know it's the foxtrot because I've read up on it, and when you watch it on the screen, it's just lovely to watch. It's got that very classic Hollywood glamour about it. It's very elegant. And then you get such a contrast, the contrast between the two characters, between John and Penny. John's a gambler, and he's living on the edge. And you can tell that in the way, so you get very classic, you need at least one Fred Astaire tap dance moment in a film that stars Fred Astaire. And, you know, you get that in, in barrels, you get loads of it. Whereas you get the likes of Ginger Rogers on her quick, light feet. She's, you know, complements the on-the-edge dangerousness of this gambler character that is Fred Astaire's John Luck Lucky Garner. And I would say they bring the best out in each other. And that's the sort of key, I think, to the classic golden age of Hollywood pairings is that when you get them to... when Even though they're fictional and you're looking at their characters rather than themselves... I would say that it brings out the best in both characters. So when you have someone that's very precise and very, I know what I want, and they can be quite bossy and very instructive because of the nature of she's a dance instructor, she's there, she's the one in control of the situation. Then when you get a man like Fred Astaire, who obviously, in terms of traditional ballroom dancing, man as the male leads the woman, you get that nice dynamic of she's the instructor, but he's the man and he leads... But there's that nice mixture and complementation of the two of them when you get to it. So, But overall, I would say it's a very easygoing classic musical to watch. Uh, I And I personally very much enjoyed it. And as a pick from the 30s, it's very much of its time with lots of set pieces, different songs which cater to each of the Hollywood stars' strengths. And obviously, in this case, it's their dancing and singing as well. But I would say Swing Time is definitely a good one to go for for, number, for my fourth pick. The other thing as well, fun little fact as well, the song, so the song The Way You Look Tonight was actually nominated uh, and won the best original song at the 1936 Oscars as well. So it got that critical acclaim, but at the same time it's also quite easy on the commercial eye as well, I would say. So definitely check Swing Time out there. My next one on my list, so number three, also from 1936. So we're kind of going backwards in years. So we had 37, 36, now we're at 36 again. Uh, and that is the 1936 James Whale production, Showboat. Now this one, 
it's a landmark film in the sense like I would argue Swing Time is an acquired taste. It's yeah, it won the best original song at the nineteen thirty six Oscars. In terms of cultural significance, I would say the James Whale production of Showboat in nineteen thirty six is groundbreaking and you know it's worth looking back on it's got lots of well not flaws as such but i think it suffers from the same sort of problem that a film from its the same era suffers from and that's gone with the wind as well so you know they deal with the issue of race in this they don't it's not a subject in the sense that you get a very race uh, race, racial abuse is wrong it's not one of those kind of films because it's a musical at its heart it's not quite the same as a swing time like style Fred Astaire musical where it's all singing and dancing there is singing and dancing in it uh, but I would say Showboat touches on it's very much I would say it's probably a slightly more scaled back less epic version of Gone with the Wind because of the fact that we follow this one woman so Irene Dunn who stars as a uh, stage struck and aspiring actress Magnolia and we follow her life all the way from her family's floating playhouse in the 1800s in the deep south all the way up to her success and her achieving her dreams and making it up to the great north as it were back as it was sort of they were seeing it as back then uh, in the 1930s so where she actually makes it to new york city up in the north Uh, and obviously because of the nature of this film because it's set in the deep south and the 1800s you're going to get depictions of certain racial opinions and views which are not in any way sense correct in any way by today's standards and even then they were wrong as i said like the issue with uh, peter pan earlier uh, and a couple of the other disney films which have suffered from their cultural representations of the time but this one i think like i said it's a very much it's a scaled back version of gone with the wind gone with the wind is an epic film and again it's a good film in terms of filmmaking film history because it's an epic it's 200 minutes long It's a lengthy piece of film. It's way over 200 minutes long or so. It's a historical epic. That's what it is. And it was in Technicolor. It was all done in colour. And the artistry of the shots and the set design and the costume and everything like that is brilliant. Whereas Showboat does have all those things. It has costume design. It has some good production values. But I would say not as much in the sense as Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is in colour it's really out there and it's got the most annoying heroine in the middle of it as well. I, I, I'm really sorry for anyone who's a fan of Gone with the Wind because I cannot stand Scarlet. <laughs> Scarlet and Gone with the Wind. Vivian Lee, she just, I don't know, there's something about her that just doesn't sit right with me. Uh, you know, I'm normally rooting for the for the a strong female lead, but there's something about her character particularly that doesn't really sit well with me. So uh, that's just my opinion on that. But back to Showboat, I would say... It's emotionally charged. We're essentially just watching the classic story of wannabe dreamer becomes the thing that she dreamed of all those years ago. So we see that progression of life. So obviously I compare it to Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is about a period of American history. And the female lead, so Vivian Lee, isn't really particularly dreaming of anything. Uh, She's just sort of getting by and we're following how her life has progressed through this really terrible period in American history be through all the war and every other aspect of it, be it culturally and socially and other such sort of areas of the American society at the time. But I would say Showboat is kind of, it's happy on one hand and then it's very melancholic on the other. And that sort of leads me on to my next point really is 
Paul Robeson, an amazing actor, groundbreaking for his time. He sings in the film a rendition of a song called Old Man River. Everybody always says who reviews Showboat, the 1936 Showboat, that that is the highlight of the film. I couldn't really agree with them any more than I already am, because Old Man River, it's where you get such a happy, joy-filled sense of family in this film, at the beginning of the film in the 1800s, with Magnolia's character as she's growing up with her family on their floating boat. I would say it's definitely a really harsh contrast to that, that happy warm family environment old man river it's an emotional song i can't say much more about it because i'm i can't because of my my own personal background but i would say anyone who watches it if you don't feel something i feel like you're not really getting it at all and yeah it's something it's hard to describe how you feel after listening to that song and watching the film as a whole so Showboat is definitely one to watch. It's black and white. Uh, so Snow White was in colour. Swing Time was in black and white. And this one's in black and white as well. Uh, but I would say don't ignore these films because they're in black and white. Because black and white, as I said for Mank, it really enhances the emotion. It takes away all the distractions from the colour that is implored into some of the films that use colour. Sometimes they're a big distraction. Uh, so I think the black and white really brings out the emotion. I think that's what makes Old Man River, performed by Paul Robeson, so emotionally charged and so raw and rich in the way it's presented on screen and as a little fun little fact James Whale uh, he's responsible for quite a few films he directed quite a few films he um directed the 1930s classic Frankenstein uh, he went on to do Frank the Bride of Frankenstein I believe as well and he also did The Invisible Man uh, as part of the Universal Studios monster movies that they made back in the 30s, 40s. He was responsible for quite a few of those. And he also, they made a biopic of them. I believe it's starring Sir Ian McKellen. I want to say that's who it stars. Uh, and it, it was from ni 1998, I want to say it came out. And that's, it's very interesting. I think it was a TV movie over anything. Uh, it's very interesting to portray him as, I, I believe it follows his personal life, as well as connecting up his career, specifically looking at The Bride of Frankenstein, and they even recreated moments from The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, so James Whale, really, I would say, is a pioneer in terms of inspiration. I think a lot of these films have, you know, they are the ones that films of today have a lot to owe to. Uh, and the same goes for the likes of Swing Time, very similar to Singing in the Rain. And I think Showboat, although it's not related to the horror genre and James Whale's work in the Universal Studios... I do think that James Whale's sensitivity and delicateness with this makes it come across just as well, even though there are attitudes presented in it that aren't exactly in line with what we think and feel today about them. Now, next on my list, so number two, is a film which I think is very popular amongst many fans, and I mention horror with James Whale, and it's quite good because I'm going to move on to a horror film from the Universal Monsters collection. And that is Dracula from 1931. It's directed by uh, Todd Browning and Carl Frond. It's a brilliant film in terms of the Universal Monsters collection of films. Because once Dracula came out, we then... I mean, we'd already had a version of Phantom of the Opera in the 1920s, in 1925. But Dracula really brought about the immersion of, oh, we can do more monster stories. We can do these stories about fabled tales from famous books from the 1800s. 
which are really popular and we could bring them to the big screen in a sound version as well because obviously in the 30s we've moved past the silent era of cinema from the 20s and whilst there might have been a couple of silent pictures still kicking about in the sort of commercial line of things most films by the 1930s were in sound as well as picture and Dracula is a brilliant example of a film to start it all off so obviously I say Snow White started off the adult fantasy and has a lot to you know offer for fantasy films of the future in some respects, which I'll get on to in a minute. But Dracula started off the monster movie obsession at Universal Studios. So literally afterwards, Frankenstein, Frank Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, various versions of Phantom of the Opera became apparent as the years went by, particularly the 1940s version, with the same actor, Claude Rains, from The Invisible Man. But that is where the inspiration comes from. Uh, it created such a foundation and it's not even a very complicated film. Dracula for me is very much a film that I enjoy to watch because it's so simple, very creepy and even though there's some low budget things here and there in it, I just love it. It stars Bella Lugosi as the titular character of Dracula and you know there's other actors in it but I think when you mention 1930s Dracula or if you just show that one picture of Bella Lugosi you know, you know, he's the man, he's the one behind it. There are other actors involved, obviously, and it's a team effort, like any film. But I do think Bela Lugosi really does carry this film throughout its history and its tenure as being a great classic and leaving a brilliant legacy, not just because of his performance, but also because of the tone of horror films for me and monster movies for many years to come. So it was a universal horror film, as I just said. Started the legacy of all these different films. We even got to see... It wasn't Bela Lugosi, but we got to see those spin-offs with Abbott and Costello, the basically Laurel and Hardy precursors, or rivals, shall we say. They got to be in these weird films where they met the different monsters. So Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Abbott and Costello meet Dracula and so forth. Dracula really started off that chain of horror films that you know and love. For me personally, I would say there's too many moments in Dracula that I could go through and name and love. I would say my favourite moment overall is the introduction of Dracula. The whole opening sequence is very eerie because you get to meet uh, Jonathan Harker who comes along He's been employed to meet Dracula because of, uh, I think it's the sale of his house. He comes along and this big, massive castle mansion place that is so incredibly big in depth. Uh, you just see this lovely, beautiful master shot of the massively tall ceiling, a grand staircase. And then you've got this little man at the bottom of the screen who's so small in this massive building. I just... In terms of, a, from a cinematography and like a cinematic point of view, so from a visual point of view, I, I just think it's brilliant. Like, it's the very essence of what filmmaking should be. Filmmaking is all about the marriage between visuals and sound. And I do feel that the visuals on this really do match up brilliantly to the sound. Because if you just heard it as an audio play, it might be quite spooky. But the visuals really add the gravitas. And that opening shot for me of Dracula where he's just stood at the top of this massive grand staircase, uh, staring down at this little man, who's still little, even though 
they're both men. They're both standing when they stand next to each other. They're the same, pretty much the same height. There's nothing really in it. They could just be two average men. Uh, little does he know that one's a vampire, and you know, and the other one's just a mere mortal. It's just a very classic film from all angles. There's nothing you can't love about Dracula. It's if you watch it for the first time, it really gives you that nice creeped out factor that you get when you watch a horror film. Like, because as humans, we're all very interested in the forbidden and the oh what's that we're intrigued by things like that so that's why like so many people these days love true crime dramas true crime documentary series and we look at the fact that we're so obsessed with the macabre and especially british i the british i would say i i would say i'm not speaking for everyone but i would say there is quite a lot of us that do like a bit of the macabre and the same goes for urban legends including ones of the vampire and dracula if I say Dracula to, if someone says Dracula to me, or I say Dracula to you, Bela Lugosi is the image I will always see. Yeah, I might think of the 1970s film, possibly, but I don't, often don't. I usually think of Bela Lugosi's immortal performance, and to me, it really does shine throughout the entire thing. But for me, Dracula, it's creepy, scary, but not like jump out my skin scary, but it's creepy atmospheric the black and white cinematography obviously that's all they they really used back in the early 1930s in 1931 but i think black and white i can't imagine it in color it might have just have been a very cheap b movie if it was in color because the black and white cinematography especially in that castle in that opening sequence where you get to see bella lugosi really perform his best like i am count dracula it's just so luxurious in the sense of so like you've got like an audience with Dracula it's a little bit like you've got a sense of royalty about it you're meeting the count in his own house and the other shot that I like as well is when bats fly all around him and there's wind blowing and everything he's I think he's made it to London by this point in the plot so Dracula essentially just wants to make it to London to drink blood essentially <laughs> and keep himself going as an immortal vampire uh, and there's a lovely shot of him which you might see i think there's a trailer for a hundred years of universal you get to see that and he's very creepy so creepy it's just amazing so atmospheric it's all in the eyes as well the eyes of bella lugosi are just brilliant on the other hand the puppet bats that are used they're laughable but to be honest bella lugosi and the performances of the whole cast as an ensemble really sell it for me and i genuinely couldn't be more enthusiastic about recommending a film to you from the 1930s but i think dracula definitely but then i say that we'll move on to my final pick uh so my number one pick for the 1930s is the technicolor extravaganza musical from 1939 that is victor fleming's the wizard of oz now i'm not going to go into too much detail about the wizard of oz because i have actually already done a bit of a mini review on this before already in a previous episode so please do check that out but for those of you who don't know very much like so obviously i should mention also dracula is based on the bram stoker novel classic novel by bram stoker but the wizard of oz like that book that film is based on a book so or a series of books called the wonderful wizard of oz and the oz adventures written by l frank baum and it stars the brilliant Judy Garland as Dorothy Gale. Uh, we've got performances from Jack Haley as the Tin Man, Bert Lahr as the Cowardly Lion, and Ray Bolger as the Scarecrow. And each of those people there, so Scarecrow, Lion, Tin Man, they all play different characters as well. In the earlier segment of the film, they play, so Hickory, Zeke, and Hunk, who all are part of the real world, but then they become part of the, fa the fantasy world of Dorothy's Oz 
I, I think it single-handedly owes itself to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And it's actually a fact that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was a success in 1937. And this gave MGM the booster to be like, we want to make an adult fantasy live-action film. Because obviously Disney went and did it with cartoons... So they wanted to go one step further and do it in live action. Because as it stands, Walt Disney actually wanted to do a live action Wizard of Oz story on film. But it was never to be because MGM got their way in there first and got the rights to the Wizard of Oz. Uh, It went for a few different directors as it did lots of Hollywood productions at the time. Um, Even if they didn't change halfway through, they'd be worked on by several people anyway. Uh, But the on-screen credit does go to Victor Fleming by the end of the film, who also did Gone with the Wind in the same year. But that's a different story for another day. The reason I haven't picked Gone with the Wind to go in my top picks of the 1930s is mainly because I think it's... I respect it as, you know, what it was for the time and the fact that it was a great historical epic, but I just don't like it. It's very long, it's very boring, it goes on for so long, It's I would say it's quite overrated. It's well made, but it's very boring. It's essentially, it's the godfather of the 1930s. It goes on for ages, it's epic, it's got great production design and everything filmic about it, but it, it's not enjoyable, it's just really boring. And it's got a lead character that no one really can like because she's so annoying. And I end up agreeing and sympathising with um, Charlton Heston, thinking, frankly, dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) That is my sentiment for that. I don't give a damn about your performance, Vivian Lee. I'm very sorry. Which means number one spot is The Wizard of Oz. And The Wizard of Oz, like I said, adult fantasy at its best. Multiple roles shared across the characters. Uh, We even get a good old Frank Morgan, who plays Professor Marvel, a a fake fortune teller at the beginning of the film. He's the Wizard of Oz, and he also gets to be several characters in the the Emerald City itself. So I think there's a lot of... It feels like they did it on a cheap budget because they just reused the same actors over and over, as well as, obviously, Margaret Hamilton, who portrays the amazing Wicked Witch of the West, who's... In all her evil glory, she also portrays uh, Miss Gulch, the evil woman who steals Toto away at the beginning of the film. There's so many moments I could list on The Wizard of Oz, but there's so many, like, for instance, the uh, Follow the Yellow Brick Road Part 1, so when the munchkins tell her to follow the Yellow Brick Road to get to the Emerald City. I love that, and you get to see... I love the visuals of the spiral yellow brick road where it starts with a little bit of red bricks as well where it spirals out from the middle of munchkin land and it goes around and around and she follows it and she goes out into the distance of what is a painted backdrop but (laughs) it's a brilliant sequence uh, and obviously the tune returns throughout the film it's very good Uh, the ruby slippers are introduced in that scene as well prior just before it as well i love the confrontation between the wicked witch of the west and the good witch glinda the good witch um not because dorothy's frightened for her life i should say just because imagery and the color is just amazing on those shoes and the green skin of the wicked witch just amazing uh merry old land of oz the song i love that that's a brilliant sequence as well uh, where you go you see the horse that changes color throughout it that's a very strange sequence but it's very jolly and very happy very classic hollywood attack on the castle and the witch's death that's another good sequence as well the twister sequence at the beginning which i there's some model shots which have survived so early takes which i think if you get the blu-ray edition of it you'll be able to see the unused some unused sequences 
for the twister sequence you get to see these model shots of how they created the twister practically and that is what amazes me and that's why it's my top pick because it had a big budget yes but it used its big budget in a right way not to bore you like gone with the wind but it really really sort of it engages you it's got songs in the right places the narrative is quite simple like snow white was but it's fantastical and fun enough for you to follow and just go along with it uh, i genuinely love the wizard of oz from the bottom of my heart it's one of my favorite films like ever in terms of a classic film but genuinely amazing film from start to finish and like i said it's in glorious technicolor as well but it doesn't start off like that and that sort of leads me on to my sort of what my favorite moment of the film is i mentioned all those ones just now but i love the fact we go from this uh, and people always say black and white it really annoys me because it's not black and white whilst it kind of is it's not it's sepia tone or sepia tone however you say the word but it's like a gray scale very old school black and white but it's not quite black and white it's got like a brown tinge to it and whilst somewhere over the rainbow is a beautiful moment it genuinely brings a tear to my eye every time i see it it actually makes me cry more than seeing dorothy being like i don't want to leave oz i don't want to leave i'm so sad i feel like i've only just got here even though she spends the entire film wanting to go home uh the entire time and then she gets to the end i'm like oh but i don't really want to go home well you're going home now <laughs> but i just the beginning that summer of the rainbow genuinely is probably one of judy garland's most famous songs that she's ever sung and performed in cinematic history but that doesn't quite build on to my favorite moment really because well it doesn't doesn't so i love this the change so we go from the twister sequence it's all amazing it's all really good you get a random cow in the tornado as well and then boof she lands my honest to god favorite moment of the wizard of oz it has to be the moment where she opens that door everything's still in the original sepia tone and then it reveals bright technicolor everything in bright color i mean i can only imagine what it must have been like to watch that film as an audience member on a big screen when it came out because i genuinely i mean when i watched it to this day when i was younger i was a little bit sort of jaded by the whole experience because i stupidly thought oh because i had a dvd copy of it i thought oh god something's broken the the pictures of everything i've seen say it's a color film but it's in black i thought it's black and white you know it's it's brown scale what's going on here but you know i was a bit ignorant back then but i was still even then at a young age when i first watched the wizard of oz i remember being so stunned when as well as relieved that the film was working <laughs> that my dvd was working i was just like whoa the way they did it and when you look at it now as well the way the door it's like if you had to do that nowadays you'd have to do like you have to do it in a digital way you'd have to chroma key it so you'd have to make it so that everything stayed black and white within that they'd probably actually make it more obvious to show you that it's sepia tone on one side of the room and color beyond the door but the way they did it is just so magical and then it leads on to the famous line of toto i don't think we're in kansas anymore and honest to god favorite moment ever the reveal of technicolor oz is just amazing which is what I feel like by the end of the film when she does click her heels and go, I want to go home now. And then she goes home and she wakes up and she goes, oh, it was an amazing dream. I, I just feel like it's such a disappointment. You go from this lovely, lavish production of Technicolor to the drab, boring, uh, sepia tone of Kansas. Like, I know that's the point of the story, that she's going back home. And I suppose, like I said, black and white, or in this case, sepia, brings out the most basic emotions. And the colour distracts you a bit. But I do feel that, I don't know, this could be a much better <laughs> ending. It seems a bit underwhelming. But yeah, so I would definitely say The Wizard of Oz, 100%. 
is my top pick for the 1930s. So just a little recap, we've got the 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from Walt Disney, 1936 Swing Time, 1936 Showboat, and then Dracula from 1931, and top it all off, The Wizard of Oz, 1939. Now, that's all I've got for you today on this episode of Take 97. That's my top five picks of the 1930s. I shall see you on the next episode, where we shall be going into the 1940s, and I shall be giving you another top five picks of my favourite films from that decade. Look after yourselves, guys, and remember to keep following us on the social media. See you later, guys.